You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health Podcast, and I have uh, Patrick Nikion. He's an author of a book called Close Your Mouth. Uh, talks about the it's, well, the Buteco Handbook. Yes, uh, this therapy or this method was named after Dr. Constantine Buteco. It's going to be we're talking about breathing exercises and guidelines uh, that will help people with their breathing. We'll get into more specifically what that means. But uh, Patrick, thanks for coming. Sure. Thanks very much for inviting me, Richard. I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, I've been uh, a mouth breather pretty heavily all my life, so uh, this will be interesting. So tell me a little, little bit about uh, how did you get into the world of uh, proper breathing and you know, what's some of your background? Um, my background was totally different, and I fell into the, the, the world of breathing just primarily from having my own issues. You know, it's it's my background is like I I did an economics degree. I was in the corporate world, but for 20 years I had constant asthma. My nose was stuffy. I was mouth breathing, very much upper chest breathing. Um, and if your nose is stuffy, you're twice as likely to have sleep problems. So I used to wake up in the morning very tired. And with that as well, when you have a breathing pattern disorder and you're breathing faster in upper chest, you're more in a fight or flight response. So the simple thing of mouth breathing for me. Um, it had really had an adverse, adverse effect on my life. And I read a newspaper article. It was about a Russian doctor. He said two things. He said, you have to breathe through your nose and your breathing should be almost undetectable during rest. Breathe light. So I used this exercise to decongest my nose and I switched to nasal breathing. And that night I used paper tape across my lips and I also used breathe right strips across my nose to keep my nose open. And I woke up about two, well, the first night was, yeah, a little bit iffy because, you know, kind of that change was a big change. But the second or third morning I woke up with my mouth closed and it was the first time that I woke up feeling refreshed in 20 years. And within a week, wow. my asthma as well was really, really changing. So I knew there was something in it. And the strange thing is nobody in 20 years of healthcare had told me to breathe through my nose. Oh, but sure. Please. They just give you nasal sprays and, you know... They're not going to tell you anything like that, unfortunately. But, but even with even with the nasal sprays, um, you know, we, we know that there's thousands of people say we'll do nasal surgery 
they'll use nasal sprays, but they're not necessarily educated to, to cha- change to nasal breathing. You know, I think the body is one of those things. If we're doing something for a period of time, even when the obstruction is removed, the pattern of behavior is, is remaining. And uh, I think that's really important, you know, that we, we, we try and get that word out there. Yeah, like I know in my own life, you know, people have told me, you know, if I'd say a yoga class or, I mean, in many different arenas, oh, breathe through your nose, out through your mouth, in through your nose, out through your mouth. That's what they would say. And I would think, well, I can't. My nose is always stuffed up. So yes. I'm very interested. How did you uh, help your nose? I mean, for, for myself, I had to change my diet drastically and have, uh, you know, very little dairy and low carbs, low sugar. And my allergies grew yeah. up. I didn't even really mean them to. But um, are there other interventions for people that, you know, their nose is always stuffed up? Yes. Yeah. Since 1923, it's been written that if you hold your breath, you decongest your nose. And the exercise we do is a breath hold exercise. So simply, you know, it's not it's not suitable for somebody if they have cardiovascular issues or if they're pregnant. But other than that, it's it's just it's akin to going for a swim underwater. So the instruction to, un- really? to decongest the noses, you simply just take a normal breath in through your nose, or if your nose is totally stuffed, take the breath in through your mouth. So it's a breath in and out through your mouth or through your nose, and then pinch your nose with your fingers and stop breathing and go start walking. So walk while you hold your breath and keep walking while you hold your breath until you build up a fairly strong air hunger and then let go and breathe in through your nose and wait, wait about a minute, do it again and do it five times with about a minute's rest in between each and your nose will start to decongest. It's pretty amazing. And, you know, as I said, like this was written, I've seen this written in the medical journals since 1923 <clears throat> that by holding the breath. And the other thing about the nose is that once we start using it and breathing through it, the nose works so much better for us. The problem with nasal obstruction is if the nose is stuffy, we don't use the nose because as soon as we breathe through the nose, whether it's a child or whether it's an adult, um, there's a feeling of air hunger. So if the nose is stuffy and the child tries breathing through the nose, the child is feeling they're not getting enough air, so they switch to mouth breathing. And when they switch to mouth breathing, it's completing the vicious circle because that's feeding into nasal obstruction. Is the mouth breathing contributes to nasal obstruction? Yeah, no, it's without a doubt. If if you continuously breathe through an open mouth, your your nose is not going to remain decongested. Um, there's no question on that. And the only reason I say that is because we see the difference when people switch to breathing through their nose. You know, they're going to spend 10 years. We have seen, we see people coming in maybe 20, 30 years, chronic mouth breathers. And yeah, it takes a little bit of work because when we first get them to decongest their nose and switch to nasal breathing, their breathing pattern is off. So they'll tend to be breathing faster and they sigh more. They'll have noticeable breathing. They're waking up in a dry mouth in the morning. And if you wake up in a dry mouth in the morning, um, you're likely to have a, a lighter sleep. You wake up unrefreshed and you're also more likely to go to the bathroom during the night. So if your sleep is fragmented, you know, because of light sleep, because of contributed to by mouth breathing, it's affecting your sleep quality And then that in turn is going to carry into the day. So I think the overall quality of life from such a simple and seemingly innocuous habit as mouth breathing, um, it's really having an adverse effect on quality of life in both children and in adults. What happens if you breathe through your mouth for a minute or two? Does it literally stuff up your nose or does it affect your nose in a negative way? One study shows that if you breathe in through your nose and out through the mouth, that within one minute that the, the nose starts to get stuffy. That's just by breathing in through the nose and out through the mouth. You know, 
it kind of makes sense in a very hot environment to breathe in through your nose and out through the mouth because if you breathe out through the mouth, you're getting rid of heat from the body. So it can have a cooling effect. But in a cold environment or in a normal kind of temperature, when you breathe in through your nose, your nose is moistening and warming, filtering the air. But there's also a gas called nitric oxide that's released into the nasal cavity. And when you breathe through your nose, you carry nitric oxide into your lungs. And nitric oxide, it sterilizes the air, but it also helps open up the airways. It's a bronchodilator. And it also redistributes the blood throughout the lungs, and that improves gas exchange. So nose breathers typically will have a 10% improvement on oxygen uptake in the blood and just by virtue of breathing through the nose. So a nose breath, nose breathing is generally deeper because you're using your diaphragm. Nose is directly linked with the diaphragm. Mouth is directly linked with the upper chest. So mouth breathing is fast and shallow. Nose breathing is deep and slow. So yeah, so just, you know, breathing through the nose, it's, it's really boiling down to that. What about during the day for you? Um... So you got through the night breathing through your nose, but did it translate to the day or did you have to do extra work to do that? It takes a little bit of awareness, but it's like anything else. You know, when you're looking at neuroplasticity and when the, the brain is forming new associations with habits, and generally it takes about 60 to 70 days to form a new habit, not 21 days. But when we have people coming into us, I go through the benefits of nasal breathing. Um Dr. Morris Cottle, he was an ear, nose, and throat from the United States back in the 1970s, and he founded the American Rhinological Society, so, you know, the foundation of ear, nose, and throat. And he said that the human nose is responsible for 30 functions in the human body. And I'll give you a couple of examples of it. For example, if you have your mouth open, you're more likely to have a dry mouth, so you've got increased inflammation of the gums. Dry mouth increases dental cavities. Mouth breathing in children can cause crooked teeth because the tongue isn't in the roof of the mouth. Mouth breathing during sleep will increase the risk of obstructive sleep apnea really significantly. Mouth breathing is activating the upper chest, reducing oxygen uptake, fight or flight response. So somebody who is mouth breathing is at a distinct disadvantage. And if they have mouth breathing for a period of six months, it's a syndrome. And we don't know the statistic that it's going for adults. I've got one paper, Japanese paper, that shows 17% of adults tested were, were persistent mouth breathers. But we know in children it can be as high as 50%. Our ancestors didn't breathe through their mouths. This is a relatively recent phenomenon. And the shape of the skull is changing as a result of persistent mouth breathing. Because when we have the mouth closed and the tongue is resting in the roof of the mouth, the tongue is developing, the tongue is driving the forward growth of the jaws. So with the mouth closed and the tongue resting in the roof of the mouth, the maxilla, which is the top jaw, tends to be forward on the face, so there's enough room for the tongue in the mouth. And when there's enough room for the tongue in the mouth, the tongue isn't stuck in the airway. So, you know, obstructive sleep apnea, Richard, as you're well aware, it's really becoming an epidemic. And oh, yeah. the effect that that's having on, you know, it's, it's really, you know, in terms of even the, the link with dementia, the link with diabetes, uh, the link with cancer, the link with many, many different diseases. And, you know, the human airway, is the size of a hose pipe. That's all it is. So if you think of the human airway as the space at the back of the nose, the space at the back of the mouth, the throat, that's the size of a hose pipe, and that's a good airway. And if you have the tongue falling back into the throat, the airway is compromised and obstructive sleep apnea is, is at a greater risk. So, you know, it's, it's coming back to it, like I'm talking to parents, we, we can show statistics the relationship between ADHD open mouth breathing and poor sleep. Um, if the child is tired, 
they have 10 times the risk of learning difficulties. It's been shown that it reduces IQ um, and productivity for adults. You know, any adult who's going around and they're feeling fatigue or they're having fragmented sleep, they're not productive as what they should be during the day. And yeah, this gets overlooked. The very premise of how to breed to improve oxygen uptake and oxygen delivery to the cells is overlooked. And people may be talking about yoga. Again, there's no emphasis on how to breathe during the day, not when you're in the yoga studio. You know, it's all very well breathing in through the nose and out through the mouth in the yoga studio or in the Pilates studio. But how do you breathe when you're walking down the street? How do you breathe when you're watching TV? How do you breathe when you're driving your car? How do you breathe when you get stressed? How do you breathe when you sleep? That's what I'm interested in. Well, it sounds like it's it's not just um, breathing in through your nose, but it's also... um, it's also the position of your tongue, yes. so it's it's proper positioning or repositioning of your tongue on a consistent basis. And yes. then I, I've yeah. also heard it's allowing your lower jaw to, I guess, move into a better position, uh, yes. maybe grow forward or move forward because the tongue is up yes. against the top palate. So I've, yes. I've heard um, from one or two people that over time, a person's facial structure will change. Have you experienced that or seen that with people you help that their facial structure is changing. They look different after a while. I think mine is. Um, now, I switched to nasal breathing 20 years ago, but it was only when I, I met a lady in, from the States, from Texas, called Karen Samuel back in 2005. Um, she's since unwell now, but we, we got into conversation. And I switched to nasal breathing in 1997, 98. And I was talking to Karen in 2005. And I said, Karen, I says, where should the tongue be? And she said, it should be up in the roof of the mouth. And I said, how much of the tongue should be up there? And she said, three quarters. And that was the first time I'd heard about it. So again, when we switch to nasal breathing, it doesn't automatically mean that the tongue goes up into the roof of the mouth. So what I do now with the adults and kids coming in is I get them to do tongue pops. And that's basically making a sound like... So you put your tongue up into the roof of the mouth to create a vacuum in order to make the pop sound. But the place where you put your tongue in the roof of the mouth is where your tongue should be all the time. Now, it shouldn't be touching against the top front teeth. There's a little ridge there, just maybe a couple of mil, um, just a very small distance behind the top front teeth. So you don't want to have your tongue pushing against the top front teeth because it could push the teeth outwards. So you're trying to get your tongue as far forward and elevated, three quarters of the tongue elevated up into the roof of the mouth. And there's even been a paper now recently that shows a relationship between correct tongue posture and um, postural stability. So the ability to walk, for example, on an uneven surface. Um, so your, your, your stability, your balance is also influenced by the position of the tongue. And, you know, maybe people might find, find that's a little bit far-fetched, but I've seen, we've attended conferences and you could have 500, 1,000 healthcare professionals, the Academy of Orofacial Myofunctional Therapy, for example, and even leading sleep doctors, such as Dr. Christian Gimeno, so he discovered obstructive sleep apnea. Well, he, he coined the phrase. Obviously, the condition was around for a long time before that. It used to be called Pickwickian syndrome. But he coined the phrase obstructive sleep apnea, and he also developed the apnea hypopnea index. And since 2015, he's talking about the critical importance of nasal breathing during sleep. So here's the top sleep doctor in the world talking about the importance of breathing through the nose during sleep, but it hasn't trickled down to the general population or at least not yet anyway. Okay, any other elements that we've missed? So tongue posture, breathing through the nose, uh, yes, diaphragmatic breathe. breathing, what, 
Are there other important aspects to doing this right? Yes, breathing should be light. So if your listeners, what I would do is when, you know, when I'm working with somebody, I get them breathing through the nose. Well, first I get them to decongest their nose. And then I ask them to start slowing down the breath. So slowing down the breath, slowing down the speed of the air as it comes into the nose, slowing down the speed of the air as it leaves the nose. And I ask them to slow down their breathing sufficiently so that they feel air hunger. So the whole purpose is designed that you're slowing down your breathing so that you feel that you're not getting enough air. Now, the feeling of air hunger is generated by an accumulation of the gas carbon dioxide in the blood. But as carbon dioxide accumulates, blood vessels open up. So people with cold hands and feet, that's often synonymous with poor breathing. If you're breathing too hard, if you're breathing too fast, you're blowing off too much carbon dioxide. And we have set between 70,000 and 100,000 miles of blood vessels in the human body. And literally your blood circulation is affected by how hard and fast you breathe. By slowing down the breath, by practicing to breathe lightly, by having efficient breathing, your blood circulation increases and oxygen delivery increases. So nose breathing, by slowing down the breath, because your nose imposes a resistance to your breathing two to three times that of the mouth. And also in terms of mental health, Stanford Medical School, if you Google Stanford Medical School and slow breathing, they discovered in March of 2017, they discovered a new structure in the brain in the locus corollis. And they said that this structure is spying on your breath. And if you breathe fast during rest, this structure will send, send signals of agitation to the rest of the brain. And if you really breathe slowly and soft and light, this structure will send signals of calm to the rest of the brain. Now, if you're a mouth breather, you tend to breathe fast. So you're in a state of agitation. So people with anxiety, people with depression, people with high stress levels, it's really important to breathe in and out through the nose using your diaphragm, but to slow down the breath. And there's a huge amount of research on this in terms of slowing down the cadence of the breath to six breaths per minute, breathing in slowly and deeply for four seconds, and breathing out slowly and relaxed for six seconds. And that stimulates the bar receptors in the major blood vessels to help restore normal autonomic functioning. So with normal autonomic functioning, as you breathe in, you should notice that your heart rate is increasing, the speed and the strength of the heart rate increases. And as you breathe out, the heart rate should be slowing down and becoming softer. And that's called respiratory sinus arrhythmia. And that's related with heart rate variability. And it's a good indicator of the functioning of the autonomic nervous system. So say, for instance, if we have individuals, there's research on this for post-traumatic stress disorder, for anxiety, for depression, for chronic heart failure, for sleep, poor aerobic performance, and even heart rate variability as a predictor of longevity. So we want to influence that. And here's the amazing thing about slow breathing, down to a cadence of six breaths per minute, 20 minutes a day, twice a day, and um, for about four weeks, and you will be on the path to helping your own health quite significantly at that. I've heard also, and this may be counterproductive, um, you know, when someone's nervous or, you know, I don't know, I've heard a lot of people say, oh, take a, a bunch of deep breaths, but it sounds like that's not right. Don't just take deep breaths. Try to take slower breaths, slower, more measured yeah. breaths, and that would work better than just deep breaths. Yeah, it depends. Like people interpret a deep breath as a big breath. Like if you're stressed and if you take in this huge big breath, it will bring you initial relief because you're stretching everything and then you're relaxing. 
but all it's doing is blowing off carbon dioxide. You know, what would happen if you took 10 of those big breaths? You start to feel lightheaded because the harder you breathe, the less oxygen that gets delivered throughout the body. If you think of somebody in an extreme hyperventilation, say they're having a panic attack and their breathing is so hard, they're blowing off so much carbon dioxide and the loss of carbon dioxide is reducing blood flow to the brain. Within 30 seconds of hard breathing, you can half the amount of CO2 in the blood and this can reduce blood flow to the brain by up to 40%. So all it takes is 30 seconds of hard breathing to reduce blood flow to the brain by 40%. That's why people who were oh, wow. having a panic attack, and um, they used to be told to breathe in and out of a bag. So the bag was simply to trap carbon dioxide. Now, you know, and then to rebreathe the carbon dioxide into the lungs to increase it in the lungs. And this in turn then increases it in the arterial blood. And as CO2 increases in the arterial blood, then you've got vasodilation, the blood vessels dilate. So I think people have it really mixed up, Richard, out there in public. And I have no idea how this message got out there. The idea that oxygen is good, breathe in as much air as you can, and carbon dioxide is bad, get rid of it. But this discovered back in in 1904 by Christian Bohr, it's called the Bohr effect, B-O-H-R. And he simply said that the partial pressure of carbon dioxide in in the blood affects pH, and this in turn affects the affinity of hemoglobin for oxygen. Now, in simple terms, the red blood cells, which carry most of the oxygen in the blood, release oxygen in the presence of carbon dioxide. So if we're breathing too hard and we're getting rid of too much CO2, not only do the blood vessels constrict, but the bond between the red blood cells and oxygen becomes stronger. The oxygen isn't getting released to the cells. So it's not about breathing in as much oxygen as you can, and it's not about breathing out as much carbon dioxide as you can. It's about having a balance. And really what we want to boil down to is light breathing in and out through the nose, slow and deep. Yeah, that's really fascinating because you're right. My perception was oxygen good, carbon dioxide bad. I'm sure Mm. that, uh, you know, I mean, we even have carbon dioxide alarms in your house or carbon monoxide, but also carbon dioxide. And I'm sure the public perception is that carbon dioxide is just bad. It's no help to anyone. Yeah, carbon dioxide is blamed for greenhouse gases, um, you know, but the the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is, is absolutely insignificant. It's 0.03 of a percent. Oxygen is 21%. And when the human lungs evolved, the concentrations of carbon dioxide were in the tens of percent. So the amount of CO2, the, the amount of carbon dioxide in the lungs and blood is 5%. So that means 5% of atmospheric pressure. So everybody will be aware that you know, oxygen is 21% of our atmospheric pressure. And if we think of it this way, then, you know, carbon dioxide in the air in the atmosphere, 0.03 of a percent, but yet for human survival, we need 5%. So the human body needs so many times more carbon dioxide to be retained in it than what's available in the atmosphere. Hmm. I don't know what the implications of that is, but it's like in our exhalation, it's about 5% yes. carbon dioxide, you're saying? No, well, it always contained within the lungs, in the small little air sacs in the lungs and in the arterial blood. Um, ultimately, it's, it's the amount of carbon dioxide that's in the lungs, which determines the CO2 in the arterial blood. There should be always 5%. So that would amount to 40 millimeters of mercury pressure of CO2, the partial pressure of CO2 in the arterial blood, almost always to be that. 
And if we are breathing too hard chronically, so say you have an individual and you notice the person is breathing faster, their upper chest breathing, they sigh every now and again. Um, you know, they have noticeable breathing during rest. Their breathing is inefficient. They're getting rid of too much carbon dioxide from the lungs, from the blood. So basically, if you're breathing hard, you're getting rid of too much CO2 from the lungs because you're breathing it out. And this in turn is reducing it in the blood. And then with lower, with lower carbon dioxide levels, it increases pH towards respiratory alkalosis. And what happens then if that continues in the long term is that the kidneys dump bicarbonate, so the buffering capacity is reduced. So there's a good deal of science behind the whole carbon dioxide theory. Now, not everybody with breathing pattern disorders show low carbon dioxide, so it's not always as clear cut. But yes, we don't want somebody to be breathing fast and hard and using the upper chest during rest. It's not good. It's really interesting. So when... So people will come to you. What, what will they say is the problem when they finally get to you and, and uh, you know, for help? Sure. Well, you- say, for instance, I've got a, a number of different groups I work with. In terms of health, people generally come with anxiety, panic attack, dis- depression, um, high stress, and also asthma. We've been using it for asthma for almost 20 years. Um, sleep, sleep disorder, breathing, insomnia, obstructive sleep apnea, and snoring because... Now, and then in terms of sports, we work with elite athletes. We work with every level of athlete. And I have a book called The Oxygen Advantage, and that's going in 14 languages. So we have, so we, for health, we have the buteco side of it. And then for sports, we have the oxygen advantage. So I suppose we reach out to everybody, you know, everybody, even, even Olympic athletes can have poor breathing. And if breathing is poor, it's, it's going to impact their performance. Actually, for Olympic athletes, over any athlete breathing properly could add or take seconds off their time and uh, help them really achieve new goals and new uh, new medals and new records. I'm sure. Without without a doubt, 50% of athletes they can be prone to respiratory muscle fatigue. Um, and if they're not breathing correctly, if they're breathing inefficiently, they're wasting energy on supporting the breathing muscles because there is a cost associated with breathing. And we we have a breath hold time, and breath hold time is simply you take a normal breath in through your nose, a normal breath out through the nose, you pinch your nose with your fingers, and you time it in seconds. How long does it take until you feel the first definite desire to breathe? Ideally, a person has a breath hold time. The goal would be 40 seconds. But if you have a breath hold time of above 25 seconds, it's a good indicator that you have functional breathing. Now, the breath hold time measures the chemosensitivity of the body to, to the accumulation of carbon dioxide. But in very simple terms, if you've got a low breath hold time, it means that you have disproportionate breathlessness during physical exercise. So if somebody comes into me, whether they are an athlete or whether they are just somebody who is in their 40s and they want to do walking or, you know, just basic physical exercise, I will look at their breathing. I will measure their breath hold time. And from that, I will have a pretty good indicator of their exercise tolerance. If that person has a good high breath hold time, they will be able to do physical exercise and they won't feel disproportionate breathlessness. But if somebody comes in to me and they have a low breath hold time, if their breath hold time is only 10 seconds, which by the way is very common, I know that they're going to be excessively breathless during physical exercise, but also if they're prone to sleep apnea, they have what's called high loop game. So when they stop breathing, it means that they have an exaggerated response to the buildup of CO2 in the blood. But basically, if they have a low breath hold time, 
during the apneic event, when they resume breathing, they will breathe so hard that it will contribute to another apnea. So the condition is feeling in and itself. So if somebody comes into me with sleep apnea, I need to get them breathing through the nose and I need to improve their, their breath hold time. And in that way, we can help significantly reduce sleep apnea. Yeah, I was going to ask you more about apnea. Um, what if, um, I mean, if someone's using a CPAP, what if, um, do you think this would be helpful? What if you uh, had a device that entrains a little bit of extra carbon dioxide in the CPAP? I know too much could probably be very bad, but what if it entrained just a little bit or it entrained nitric oxide? Yeah, you're breathing you know, into your mouth? I think it could be, it could be an idea. And I'm, I would, I would not be surprised if that has been looked at, you know, but the only thing is, though, it's, it's your breathing during wakefulness that's influencing your breathing during sleep. So I'd be more interested in slowing down the person's breathing during the day, have them practice breathing exercise. And the benefit of this is, you know, you practice it during the day. And in time, then this becomes your permanent way to breathe. Um, OK, it takes a little bit of observation, but even still, you're more likely to breathe that way. So then your breathing is lighter during sleep. And in terms of sleep apnea, the whole field of sleep apnea has changed so much in the last four years, just in four years, because now traditionally sleep apnea was seen primarily as an anatomical issue. The airway was too small. There was collapse of the airway. So it was primarily down to small airway. You might have had receding jaws, for example. But now there's three non-anatomical traits or phenotypes. One is called arousal threshold, and that basically means how light or deep asleep are you if you're a very light sleeper and if you're waking up with the slightest of stimuli it means that you're going to wake up exhausted but you don't need to have a really high apnea hypopnea index to be waking up exhausted and we want to restore nasal breathing here because when you breathe through your nose and breathe lightly your sleep is deeper so we can help improve arousal threshold so the person isn't waking up so frequently the second one then is loop gain so somebody with a high loop gain, they've got a low breath hold time during the day. They're breathing too hard during the day. And then when they stop breathing during sleep, this is, this is followed by really hard breathing, which is feeding back into the apneas. So I want to slow down their breathing and build up their breath hold time. And then upper airway recruitment, because you've got a set of airway dilator muscles in the throat. And these are specifically designed to keep the airway open, both during wakefulness and sleep. But these muscles are related to the diaphragm. Now, you can imagine somebody who's mouth breathing during sleep. They're breathing fast and upper chest, and they're not using their diaphragms effectively. And as a result, there's not so much communication going on from the diaphragm to the upper airway dilator muscles. So when we restore nasal breathing and when we train the diaphragm and start restoring diaphragmatic breathing, as the diaphragm works better, it increases lung volume, and this results in the stiffening of the throat to help reduce collapse. So it's really an exciting time in terms of sleep apnea. Um, if anybody has it that's listening, you know, look at the phenotypes of sleep apnea and you know, start practicing changing your breathing patterns because it's something you'll have the tools for the rest of your life. Um, and there's not really, any, you know, in terms of a cost, it doesn't cost all that much to change your breathing patterns. Um, you can, you can yeah. do so much even for $95 or a book for $10 even, you know, and that's the one thing about it. Well, first of all, what's wrong with breathing in through your nose and out, out through your mouth? Why is it better to breathe in, in through your nose and out through your nose? And then I have a, a follow-up question after that. So when you breathe in through your nose, you're picking up moisture and heat. 
And then when you breathe out through your nose, your nose traps that moisture and heat into the body. So if you breathe in through the nose and out through the mouth, there's a 42% greater water loss by breathing out through the mouth. Um, so you're more likely to be dehydrated. You know, I'm sure you can remember as a kid going up to a pane of glass and you're exhaling onto the pane of glass, but you use your mouth because if you breathe out with your mouth, you're leaving so much more fog and moisture in the glass. So mouth breathing is reducing, it's reducing water content and it's also causing a lot of heat from the body and the body has expended energy in producing that heat. So it's important to retain it um, because it's the conservation or it's the retention of heat and moisture in the body that helps to keep the nose open. So if you breathe in through your nose and out through the mouth, the nose is more likely to be congested. I've tried uh, just on my own, like combined breathing. It takes a little bit of, it's like a little tricky, but, you know, breathe in through my nose and through my mouth at the same time. Like if my nose was mm -hmm. congested and I felt too much air hunger, I tried both. I mean, any yes. clinical use of that, is that useful at all or, or there's no point? No, I'd be really switching just to nasal breathing. You know, at the start, it takes a little bit of persistence. Um, measure your control pause and just see how that is. Because if the control pause is low, the breathing is more likely to be faster and harder. And as a result, you might feel that you're not getting enough air through your nose. But it's by practicing the breathing exercise and keep breathing through the nose. You know, if you slow down your breathing to the point of air hunger, within a few days, you'll actually start feeling comfortably breathing through the nose. If we think about the entire nature, the animal world, with the exception of a dog, um, I'm not aware of any other animals except a gannet, a penguin, a pelican. They can mouth breathe when they are healthy, but no other animal on earth will breathe through the mouth when they are healthy. And it's only when animals become very sick or very stressed that they revert to mouth breathing. Now, our ancestors were innate nasal breathers. You know, tribal groups are innate nasal breathers, and they know this from the shape of skulls. You know, anthropologists, when they recovered skulls from, say, upper middle class background in, in Europe, about 400 years ago, they started noticing the first crooked teeth. And the teeth were crooked because the tongue wasn't in the roof of the mouth and the tongue wasn't in the roof of the mouth um, placing a force or creating the shape, you know, molding the shape of the palate and molding the shape of the mouth to house all of those teeth. So mouth breeders tend to develop very narrow jaws, high upper palate and crooked teeth. So our ancestors, if you go into a history museum, you look at skulls, you'll see perfectly formed skulls and plenty of room for all teeth. Nowadays, you don't. Something has happened. Hmm. Well, this is great, Patrick. So what are some resources you have for uh, for listeners for the podcast? Um, yeah, so we've got our website is butecoclinic.com, and I give webinars where I guide people through um, two hours of exercise. They're small groups, but they're online, and we use Zoom, and I've got a specific webinar for sleep, one for asthma, one for panic disorder. They cost $95. So for two hours, I guide you personally through it. I guide each person through it. And also you get the recording. And that would be a very, very easy way to start becoming comfortable with doing the exercise and also experiencing benefits from it. Um, I've got books. I've got eight books. So there's books on many different topics, you know, anxiety or sleep. Or as you mentioned, close your mouth has been a popular one with dentists and myofunctional therapists. So, yeah. You know, I'd say to, to people, um, really start observing your breathing because you can make quite a difference to your health by changing your breath. In Ireland, wouldn't you call the book Shut Your Gob instead of Close Your Mouth? Well, yeah, I have another <laughs> one called Shut Your Mouth, but I was uh, 
it's you know I just I don't know where people uh, was it upsetting them I you know I give training courses and I'd be giving out the book and the front cover it says shut your mouth and already then people are saying well what's going on here so close your mouth is a little bit more acceptable you know <laughs> yeah excellent well Patrick thanks for coming on the podcast I really appreciate it yeah you're very welcome Richard thanks very much for having me along. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.